0: Let's talk about this, um, this call that we're going to read about in chapters, um, really mostly 16. I'll, I'll kind of dip back into 15 a little bit uh, from last week. We're going to talk about open doors of opportunity. The phrase, Macedonian call, you ever heard that? Well, I got a Macedonian call. That phrase comes from what we're going to study today, and it, it's a reference too uh, often is referenced when people think about a call to be a missionary. I want to kind of take this in a little bit different direction today, but certainly it does include that. Some claim that the era of foreign missions is over. But in my opinion, mission opportunities definitely still exist, given that in our day, more than 4 billion people worldwide don't claim Christ as Savior. It still seems like to me there's a lot of work yet to be done. But, you know, what I've got to deal with is there's some work to be done on Glenhurst Boulevard, too. And at 14,600 uh, North Portland and the precincts right around us, you know. There's just lots of work yet to be done. Um, uh, Morgan Alsop, there's even work to be done south of I-40. I, I don't know if you agree with me on that or not, but I think there is. Uh, that we talk often about the fact that, you know, uh, sometimes... I feel like I'm a missionary to South Oklahoma City, and I'm very sure that he thinks he's a missionary to North Oklahoma City when he comes up here to church. But um, isn't it true that if I will have eyes to see, if I will listen for the voice of God, there's all kinds of opportunities around there. Now, let me set the tone for what we're going to study today. This is the beginning of what might be called Paul's second missionary journey, and his intent was to go back to places. His desire was to revisit the churches he had planted during his first journey. You know, he's, he's got these journeys kind of emanating from the, from the ancient city of Antioch. And um, what he'd like to do is to go back to the places where he's already worked and communicate to them the decision that the Jerusalem Council, the church, gave last week in Acts 15. You remember that decision? Basically put... Uh, you can read about it in 1536, but basically put, the decision was, in order to become a Christian, you don't have to first become a Jew. Is that simple enough? Is that, does that kind of capture it? I think it does. Uh, it it kind of centered around a couple of really huge issues. Um, one in particular that we talked about was the issue of circumcision, but but the idea was you don't have to first become a uh, a, a Gentile, didn't have to first become a Jewish, in order to become a Christian. Um, Now, this expedition, this second trip, as they were getting ready to go, was almost blown apart um, (laughs) over an argument that two great Christian leaders had with each other. Paul and his dear friend, the encourager, Barnabas, okay, got in an argument over what? Over John Mark, or Mark, the guy that writes the gospel to Mark. The argument was one of them wanted to take him along, the other one did not. Who wanted to take him? Barnabas. Paul did not. Why? He was a deserter. He got, you know, kind of halfway through the last trip and wanted to go home. And Paul just said, I don't have time to mess with that. And uh, they got in an argument. So they, they kind of part company over that. And uh, Paul, Barnabas, goes ahead with John Mark and takes him back to Cyprus, where he's from. And they kind of have some effect there. And then uh, Paul is going to choose a guy um, by the name of Silas, who's a respected church leader. We read about him for a second last week as well. He accompanies him on his journey back, they're supposing to encourage all these churches that that they had that Paul had planted on his last visit. The year is about A.D. 52. Okay. So it's 30 years or so after the resurrection. And um, and and they head back. Now, what I'm gonna ask Bob, if you'll start us, go to chapter 16 <laughs> and read the first three verses. Would you do that? Okay, now, let's begin uh, this part of the discussion by discovering one of the reasons Paul wants to go through this area that he's going through is to find and meet and recruit a young man by the name of Timothy. You can put his name in the first blank, okay? Now, let's begin here by talking about who Timothy is. Now, I find it kind of intriguing here. Uh, This is only my own conjecture but but i find it intriguing that in the absence of the younger john mark on this trip paul thinks you know what i'm kind of my age and silas is well you know how silas is we need a younger guy to go with us and he hears about this kid who may not have been more than a, a late teen okay Ronda and I were talking we we're watching a couple of football games off and on yesterday, talking about all these kids that are making these big decisions, doing all this stuff, and they're some of them are 18, 19 years old. You know? Uh, imagine that, and here is world changing things going on. Not that football's not world changing, okay? But you get my point. And he's looking for a younger man. There's, there's already an idea, I wonder, if if Paul has. The idea, the thought, the strategy that I need to take someone along with me who's younger. By the way, um, I'm doing my best to reach out to younger people. I'm considering um, growing a beard and a man bun so that I can reach them all. (laughs) What is the deal with man buns? If you don't know what a man bun is, look it up. You'll see pictures of it, I'm sure. You know? Yeah. Huh? Well, it, I, I'm not sure. It is a ponytail. Tucked up. Yeah. All right. Now, let's look at a couple of places. Go over with me. Go to the right. Keep your finger there. Go over to the right to 2 Timothy. Guess what? That follows 1 Timothy. That's as much help as I'm going to give you. 2 Timothy. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. Okay, here's some descriptions of who Timothy is. Paul is writing to him here later, okay? 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. So there's the idea that he's a third generation believer in Christ, okay? So now 3.15 uh, go oh, just over a page, 315, same book, At that from childhood, actually let's go to 14, however, continue in the things you have learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we need to kind of come to terms with who Timothy is. Let me give you four or five things that we can glean from the Scripture. First of all, Timothy's name means one who honors God. So he's got a good name, right, in more ways than one. He's got kind of a reputation, and it's a good reputation. That's a very good thing. Secondly, um, he is referred to as, here in 16, which Bob just read, He is referred to, if you look at just back at 16 here, he's referred to as a disciple. What does that mean? He's already a follower of Jesus, okay? Um, All right. Third, then we talked about his spiritual heritage. His mom is described as Jewish, but also as a believer. So is his grandmother. And uh, they are Christian and part of the church. Now, the fourth thing we ought to know about him, though, is, is also very intriguing and interesting. His father is mentioned as being a Greek, which probably means that not only where he was from, in other words, the blood coursing through his veins, but it probably also means that he was neither a Jew nor a Christian, okay? So you've got mom and grandma, so he's got that, that raisin, you know, he's got that raisin going for him. Uh, mom and grandma but dad would not have would not have schooled him in the ways of the lord why because dad was not a believer either in god or certainly in jesus his son okay so we kind of got that to deal with and then fifth He's kind of presented here in the first couple of verses and in other places as having a really positive reputation among the Christians, not only in Lystra, but also in Iconium. So in the area, about 15 miles away, how nice is it that we read about a guy that may be 19 years old who has a reputation for good, not only in his town, but uh, in the next town over. Paul wants to meet this guy. And so part of his... Uh, aim here is to meet Timothy and to recruit him. Um, so, now, if, if you're like me and like to kind of figure some of these things out, if and you'll look Timothy up, you'll find that when Paul's writing to him later on, and we read from uh, 2 Timothy here, but when Paul's writing to him later on, by that time, Timothy is the leader of the... Great disciple-making church of the New Testament in Ephesus in Asia Minor. Timothy's that leader. Um, and uh, Paul is very proud of where Timothy ends up. But it's going to begin here with Paul kind of coming alongside him and, say, and saying, Timothy, why don't you go with us on this trip? Okay, so they kind of went to find Timothy. Um, and we mentioned here what kind of we know, him, uh, know about him. Now, but Paul does something, if you were here last week... Paul does something that seems really, really, really inconsistent. Okay, that's what goes in your next line there. All right? We need to kind of take a a closer look at this. You know, I think back to um, 1,800 years later after this story, I think back to a guy that I've read about by the name of Hudson Taylor who wanted to, to share the gospel in China. So what did Hudson Taylor do? He began to look, he he did as much as he could to look like a Chinese person. So he kind of infiltrate. He dressed like them. Uh, He learned their language, that kind of thing. Well, I think we're up against this. Interestingly, let me read read verse 3 again. I just think it's kind of intriguing based on our discussion last week and on the Jerusalem Council's decision. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him. We need to stop right there. What? What? Didn't we talk about this last week? And the Jews said, no, it's not not necessary. Paul? I'm Timothy. I'm saying, "Uh, uh uh-huh. So evidently, there's something else at work here. So let's deal somewhat with the whys here, now I find it even. Would somebody go over to Titus? Find the little book of Titus. Um, Steve Blair, can you find Titus for us? It's not too far to the right, and and go to. Um, um, I've got to find the verse now. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I wrote it down. Well, and we'll find it in just a second. Hang on. Uh, I wrote this down. I can't find it. But it's interesting here that Paul um, will do this. Now, I think one of our answers is embedded right there in the verse. 16, uh, we're in 16.3. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him. Now, there's the phrase, because of the Jews who were in those parts for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, so there's this idea that the reason he did this was had nothing to do with the Jerusalem Council's decision. It had everything to do with who they were going to minister to. Um, now, it's one thing, okay, uh, you've got to remember, Paul, in every place that he goes till the end of his ministry, always goes first and tries to find wherever the Jewish folks are hanging out. Typically, in a synagogue, in, in our chapter today, he's going to go down by the river. There's a place of prayer down by the river, and he finds them there. There's no synagogue in this place called Philippi that we're going to study today. But he's always trying to find where the Jews hang out, and he shares with them, I have found your Messiah. So he knows that he's going to be going to those places with this young man who will be acting and speaking like a Jewish person, but if they've heard or if it comes out in conversation that his daddy is a Greek, they're going to automatically wonder, is he circumcised? Jewish frame of mind. Is he one of us or is he one of them? Remember, we've talked about that for the last several weeks. Okay, So, Paul knows that it's one thing to tell Gentiles they don't need it. If you know what it is here. It's one thing to tell the Gentiles they don't need it, but it's a Entirely other thing to tell a Jew that it is optional. And they're going to begin everywhere they go by, by trying to evangelize Jews first. Okay? So Paul does this. And, and uh, it's kind of interesting here. Secondly, we need to know that this act has nothing to do with Timothy standing as a disciple. I want to be really clear about that. And in in the context of chapter 15, this is entirely, completely consistent with their decision. This has nothing to do with Timothy being a disciple. He's called a disciple before he's circumcised by Paul. Fair enough? But there's a reason here or reasons that um, he is doing this. Now go with me to Galatians 2 verse 3. And this may be, Steve, where I was looking for, and I was just thinking it was in Titus, but I think it may be in Galatians. Yeah, this is it. Galatians 2, verse 3. He says here and Paul is writing to the Galatian church where they've got all kinds of this problem with with, uh, Jewish people coming behind him undoing his work. And he says here in verse 3, not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. That's interesting. He does circumcise Timothy. He does not circumcise Titus. And the only conclusion we can reach here, I think, has to do with the fact that Titus was Greek and he was known as a Greek. Timothy was kind of, he was kind of a Jew, but they knew his dad was Greek. You know how that works? Kind of, you catch that? Mom and, and grandma were Jewish, but dad was was. Not, he was, he was uh, not a believer. And so um, as people would meet him, they would wonder, is he one of us? Is he one of them? And so Paul just, Paul really does something here. I find it intriguing. As hard as it was, Paul acts not only as Timothy's discipler and his rabbi, by the way, it would be rabbis who perform circumcision. Paul acts not only as Timothy's Discipler and his rabbi, but he acts as his father. This is something your father, if you're a Jewish boy, would, would have made sure happen to you. But his father was not a believer. And so Paul acts as his father here. Of course, it also makes me wonder if Paul had to give Timothy's dad a knuckle sandwich to make it happen. But anyway, okay. I find this just really intriguing in the context of last week and all that discussion about this is not necessary, that he felt it was necessary here. Okay, now, let's go on. They do this, and they go into these these towns. They visit certain of these places, and everywhere they're going, they're announcing or delivering the council's decision. Uh, Steve Blair, can I come back to you read verse 4 and 5? Of sixteen. Okay, so their main purpose in visiting these towns—we've mentioned it before—was to deliver the council's decision. Now, jump back a page with me, all right? On um, um, some of your bibles, you may not—you may just look. Across the page. I want to go to 1528. Here's their decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from all things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. That was the letter that they sent back with Paul and others. Uh, to to these churches, to tell them. Now, what was the reaction of the churches? What was their result? It strengthened them. There's two words here that are used that I think are really important. Strength and growth. It strengthened them to continue to do their work, to continue to share their newfound faith, and other people began to respond. I can't, I, I just can't help But think of the events of this past weekend when I make the statement here that the world 2,000 years ago is no different than the world is today. The world is hungry for this message. Here's your paper this morning. On the front page, in somber Paris, killings leave feelings of emptiness. Do you, do you get a hunger implied in that? That it, just I'll read the first paragraph. The indiscriminate taking of so many lives squeezed life out of Paris itself. Not all life, but enough to create a sense of emptiness. Although far from extinguished, the city of light is now unmistakably dimmed. That's a cry for help in a place where. You wouldn't think about, when we think about sending missionaries somewhere, we think about sending missionaries to, to Africa and to, you know, India. We don't think of, of really a first world country, do we? And yet, if you follow it like I do, you recognize that in South Korea, you know where they're sending missionaries? To the U.S. That ought to chill you. Okay. The world is hungry for the message that you and I often take for granted. For what we get on Sunday morning, for what we have in our Bible studies, for what I'm allowed to do on my own as I open my Bible every morning. The world is hungry for that. They don't really know what they're hungry for. You remember John Denver? Remember John Denver? Sang the song about um, coming home to a place I've never been before. Remember that? Okay, that song's got to be going through your head about now. All right? Talking about Colorado? Or was he talking about West Virginia? Anyway, one of those places. Yeah. Coming home to a place I've never been before. All right. People are hungry for that. Now, I want us to go down to verse 8. And Paul has got all these plans. He's got He's got his itinerary. He has checked MapQuest, and he's done kind of all these I'm going to stop here, and then I'm going to stop here, and then I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to go here, and then hopefully I'll get to go over here, and I'm going to encourage all these people, right? But God's got a different plan. Let's start with verse 8. If somebody would, start with verse 8 and read down through about, oh, 15. It's not not as long as that seems. Uh, Verse 8 and go down to 15 in chapter 16. Oh, I love this lady. We're going to talk about her in just a minute. Now, here's what happens, okay? Look at verse 6 and 7. I'm going, to read, I'm going to back up there, read through them a little bit. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They wanted to go over by Ephesus. They weren't allowed to. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to, trying to go into Bithynia. So when they were in Mysia, they said, I'm, I'll Mysia and I'll Bithynia. Okay, they said that. Bithynia, yeah, you know, yeah. Paul had a list. And the spirit of Jesus didn't permit them. So where they wanted to go, they didn't necessarily get to go. Paul, God was saying to him, uh, Paul, in this vision, he was saying, not there, here. Not there, here. You ever felt this in your life or Paul, where God is saying to you, um, Lord, I really want to do this. This is my mission in life. And God says, not there, here. Not there, here. And it could be that God is saying to you, if this chapter in your life, not there, not that new job, Kathy. It could be right here where you are. Could be. Could be. What I want us to catch here is that the dream that Paul is given from the Macedonian saying, come over here, is urgent. If you're reading from the New American Standard, What is the verb that's used that the Macedonian, uh, when the Macedonian calls to Paul? Begging. He's begging. That's a strong word. Now, here's my question. I could phrase it this way. What's your Macedonian call? But I want to phrase it in a much more pointed way. Who's begging in your life? It's going to be hard for me to say the next couple of sentences, so bear with me. I realize in my family there's a man that I barely know that my son has befriended named Dave. And Dave is begging. He doesn't even know he's begging, but he's begging. And there's a Little Roman Catholic lady, just kind of new in our lives, named Pam. Who's begging? I just got to ask you. I'm sorry. Who is it that's begging for you to speak into their lives? Who is it? It may be somebody in your family. Who's far from God? It may be somebody who you barely know. It may be your cross-the-street neighbor. It may be the person who checks you out at the grocery store. Who's begging in your life? You may not receive a Macedonian vision like Paul did. You may not, you know, I, I drank some, I ate some hot sausage the other night. And I had all kinds of dreams, but they weren't this kind of dream, okay? You know, barbecue. Not this kind of vision. It may not be that God is going to come to you and say, okay, you're going to get the picture of this person in your life, and they're going to say, come, I'm begging you to help me. Can you hear my words? Believe me, they're there. They're there. And your response to the call may be the difference. You may be the only person in their sphere of influence who has the gospel in their lives. And I'm not talking about, you know, you got to go to seminary and learn to preach here. I'm not talking about you got to take three courses so that you can articulate the gospel, although that wouldn't be a bad idea. You just need to tell them your story. That doesn't need a whole lot of rehearsal. Who is begging you? My suspicion is there's somebody. The dream conveys an urgent call. And so in verse 10, Paul just wastes no time. You notice the word here is at once they took off. Now, there's something else that happens here. We'll, we'll discuss it the rest of this study through Acts. By the way, we'll be in chapter 17 next week. We'll, we'll study it in the rest of uh, the book of Acts. But but look, it's interesting to me. Um, uh, look, compare um, verse 4. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. All right? Then, if you look now and compare them with verse 10. Okay, it says, when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Okay, who's writing this? Luke, okay, Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also writes the book of Acts. Evidently, somewhere between verse 4 and verse 10, Luke is now along with them. Just want to catch that. We'll see that later. A lot of what he'll do from this point on is eyeball witness stuff to what's happening because he's along with them. So Dr. Luke is now with them. Um, but Paul wastes no time getting on the road. He goes goes on to do this, and so he takes a route here. And in verse eleven, it kind of shows us the route he's going to take. Uh, let me let me review it one more time. Verse eleven: So, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. Now, what you need to know, I don't know a whole lot about geography, but what you need to know is that Neapolis is in the peninsula of Greece. Guess what has just happened? and it's done so without a whole lot of fanfare here, but the Apostle Paul, and therefore the gospel, has just been taken to Europe. Now, there were probably believers in Europe, but in terms of someone being sent there, without this Macedonian call, the gospel doesn't get to Europe, or at least until years later. How how many of us does that, Influence. How many of us, us does that have anything to do with? Um, Skip and Christy and us were together yesterday talking about uh, our, uh, our roots back to Scotland. That's Europe, folks. On my mom's side, that goes back to Ireland. That's Europe, folks. If you've got any kind of European descent, here's the beginning of you finding Christ. It couldn't be a bigger deal for, for many of us. Now, it, we, he lands in a place in Macedonia called Philippi. This is a vital city in more ways than one. Let me let me share with you just a couple of things about Philippi here. Um, uh, this is a place where... Um, boy, I, I'm going through one of these days where I've got notes everywhere and can't find a single one of them. It would be nice if I could find my own notes. Philippi is a city with a long history. It's named after it was named for Philip II of Macedon, that area, who established it in 356 B.C., 300 years before Jesus. That same year, he had a son. His name was Alexander, became known as Alexander the Great. About 94 years before Paul's visit, Philippi had been the site of a decisive battle in a Roman civil war. You can read about that. Mark Antony and those guys were involved in some of that stuff. Um, and, And so the city subsequently became a Roman colony. Veterans of the Roman legions were then allowed to retire there after their 20 years of service was over. And so there was a lot of Roman influence there, a lot of Greek influence there, certainly because it's in the heart of that. And it becomes a commercial and administrative center right in the heart of the Greek world. And it's also right along a major Roman highway. So... A key place, this place, Philippi, a vital city in lots of different ways. And so Paul goes, in verse 13, he goes kind of down by the river, which I find interesting. But why does he go there? He's trying to find a place of prayer because he figures people who love God will be gathered there since there's no synagogue in that place. And so he does find them there. He meets a lady by the name of Lydia. She is, put this in your next Line, she is what is the book of Acts often calls a God-fearer, all right, which means she was a Greek, she was, um, um, had been raised as a pagan, but she had fallen in love with what she knew of Yahweh God that was talked about in the Old Testament. She wasn't Jewish, she was Greek, but she had heard about God and she kind of loved God, she was a God-lover, a God-fearer, but she had not been been made a proselyte into Judaism and she now wants to hear more. And so Paul enters that scene and he tells her about God's son. Now there's a phrase here in verse 14 that I think is really, really important here. What is her response when she hears the message of the gospel from the words of Paul? It says, God opened her heart to hear a message. Any of you that study theology or interested in that kind of thing, this is a crystal clear description of provenient grace. God allowed her, God opened her heart to hear this message. And so, she makes a decision. And her decision is followed by baptism. She's baptized into, into the Christian faith. That's one of the things that they're saying here. Okay, when you, if you accept Christ, you need to be baptized, so she does that. Still true. And then it's followed also not only just by baptism, by, but by hospitality. That's very common. You read about it a lot in the New Testament. Somebody accepts faith and they say, come to my house, and that's what she did. Her house becomes, becomes really um, um, the 14,600 six, 14, North Portland Avenue of Philippi the church in Philippi met at Lydia's place because of her hospitality and her new faith. Thus, one of the things we've got to see here is that, you know, you could ask the question, "Who is the first man who was a convert in Europe? And the answer is, it wasn't a man. It was a woman. I find that intriguing as all get out. And aren't you glad the Bible records it just like it happened? Lydia, the first European convert that's at least recorded here. How wonderful. Now, I uh, believe that we're being encouraged here to do something. The Joshua Project, a a modern-day study project, identifies over 7,000 of the more than 16,000 people groups in the world that are unreached book of Romans says, how are they going to know without a preacher? How are they going to know without somebody to share that message? What other hope is there when no churches exist? But there are millions of under, unevangelized people within reached groups as well. We read about it in today's newspaper in some ways. We've got to reach out in both of those categories. There are people all over the world who are screaming, Come and help us. What are we going to do with that message? Are we going to respond to the need? And as by we, I don't mean just we as a church, but I certainly mean I have got to drill down on the call myself and recognize that God is calling me. There may not be a Macedonian vision in my life, but I've got to understand there is somebody that I've got to tune into who's begging for the gospel in my world and in your world. What am I going to do with that? That's the question I'm going to leave for. What am I going to do with that? Will you respond? Will you act decisively and quickly like Paul did? He, get, he has the vision. He gets up the next day and says, Guys, we're going a different direction. We're going to respond to somebody who's crying out for help. I'm asking for you to be willing to allow God to change your path to meet the need of somebody who is begging even though they don't even recognize it yet. Chapter 17 next week. I'll see you. Have a great Sunday.